0: You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today.
1: Let's see what we can do with this last hour. <clears throat> Finally, after more than three centuries, the brutal, sprawling Assyrian Empire is going to go down. Uh, its last major king, of any significance anyway, is going to be Ashurbanipal. And then uh, Ashurbanipal's reign is going to be followed by a series of relatively weak leaders. And, in fact, the Assyrian Empire is going to start to unravel. And the anti-Assyrian sentiments of people who have been looking for the opportunity to break free are going to find their opportunity and successfully break free of Assyria and one of them Babylon is going to actually conquer Assyria starting uh, just with a small revolt but it just keeps widening and widening and eventually it's going to engulf the empire. So um, uh, basically this is how it happens. As the Babylonians begin to assert their independence and uh, fight against the Assyrians, they are going to drive the Assyrians out of Babylon itself, successfully expelling them. And so Babylon becomes its own entity, first of all. This happens uh, in the 620s. Then the Babylonians are going on the offensive. Uh, The weak leaders of the Assyrian empire are going to start backing up, and the Babylonians are going to continue gaining ground. So uh, eventually by 614, one of the major cities of uh, Assyrian administration is going to fall to the Babylonians, and that's going to be Asher. Uh, Asher is going to be defeated and taken over by the Babylonians. Within two years, the Babylonians will actually engulf Nineveh, and Nineveh will go down. Well, those are the two major administrative centers of the empire. So the Assyrians are now kind of backed off into Northwest Mesopotamia, and they're going to end up uh, up in the area of Haran. This is back where many centuries earlier, Abraham lived for a period of time before he actually went down into the land of Canaan. Uh, And that government is going to collapse. Uh, There's going to be a major battle at Carchemish, and the last ally of the Assyrians is going to be defeated, and that ally will be Egypt. So here's what it looks like map-wise. Today, of course, all of these areas are modern countries. Uh, over here, you have Iran. Over here, you have Iraq. Over here, you have Syria. Uh, and over here, you have Israel and Egypt, uh, still kind of the same names. And out here, you have Saudi Arabia. Um, so, Babylon, which is down here on the Euphrates River, uh, gains its independence, begins pushing northward. And as they do, uh, and this is the city of Babylon right here, as they do, they're going to eventually take over the, the administrative centers and all of this area eventually is going to just kind of be absorbed into the Babylonian empire. This, um, this transition was predicted by the prophet Nahum. You haven't got to him yet, but you're going to get to him, and he is going to predict the fall of Assyria. Probably at the time he said this, nobody could hardly believe it because um, it just seems so unlikely that uh, an administration as powerful as the Assyrians would go down. Uh, but, in fact... Uh, ancient texts actually tell us this. Now, I inserted this text in my uh, in my slides because I didn't have it there originally. I didn't know if I'd have time to talk about it, but um, probably I've put in another 10 or 12 slides altogether into my presentation that are more than you have. <clears throat> if you want those, let me know and I will get a copy uh, that you can have. Uh, uh, so, uh, you want those two, I would suppose. Is that right for you for the camera? Do you want me to get those two uh, to Chris or some? Uh, Chris is the one I have his email, so I, I will I'll try to do that. I'll do that uh, sometime between tonight and tomorrow morning. So the uh, the uh, tablet here describes the fall of Nineveh and the collapse of the Assyrian Empire. Now. <clears throat> While this is happening, while the Babylonians are attacking the Assyrians and going back to the map here just for a moment, the Assyrians are kind of crowded back up in here. They've abandoned their capital and they're back up here with kind of a refugee government of sorts and the Babylonians are coming right straight at them. But the Assyrians were in a relationship with Egypt So Egypt is going to send an army up the coast, crossing through the Megiddo Pass to support the Assyrians. And this is happening during the reign of Josiah. And Josiah's got to decide what he's going to do. Does he want to let the Egyptians pass without interference, or does he want to try to derail them? And at this point, he already knows how bad the Assyrians are. I don't know if he knew how bad the Babylonians could be, but he, I, I think he figured they'd be better than the Assyrians. Anybody would be better than the Assyrians. So he is going to try to stop the Egyptian advance. <clears throat> so um, what he's going to do is he is going to take the Judean army and try to ambush the Egyptians in the Megiddo Pass. Well... <clears throat> I'm not sure his ambush didn't work very well because they discovered him and uh, the message came to him from Pharaoh Nico: you need to back down. And if you don't back down, you're putting yourself at great risk. Uh, So Josiah decides I'm not gonna back down. Uh, And so uh, he does interpose the Judean army between the Egyptians and the pass and Josiah's gonna be shot and killed. So Josiah's death, is going to then change the game plan for Judah. Nico has marched northward. Uh, Josiah has put his army in the way. Uh, he's been warned to stay out of the way. He doesn't stay out of the way. And so he gets shot and killed. This, by the way, is Pharaoh Nico. Uh, this is uh, at least what uh, the Egyptians thought he looked like. Uh, this is uh, from a museum in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, but it does have an image of Pharaoh Nico, too. Uh, and Nico is the one who is responsible for the death of Josiah. This is the Megiddo, uh, the hill of Megiddo, or the mountain of Megiddo, which is right at the edge of the Megiddo Pass. So <clears throat> this rises about 100 feet from the valley floor, more or less. And the uh, farmland that you see here actually goes back into the pass that lets an army get from the mountainous areas up here into the coast region. So the Egyptian army's coming up the coast, they're gonna pass through the pass here, and somewhere right along in here is where Josiah tries to ambush them and uh, gets killed for his efforts. Uh, By the way, what is the famous word in the New Testament that's based on the word Megiddo of the Megiddo Pass? Anybody know? It's a word that even non-Christians usually have heard of. It's Armageddon. Uh, actually, what it says in Hebrew, <laughs> what it says in Hebrew is har megado uh, or har megido. Har is the Hebrew word for mountain. So once you get har megido, you can kind of see how that kind of transliterates into Armageddon. Um, so anyway, you uh, uh, it's, it's something people are uh, familiar with. Anyway, so what, what do you, uh, let's talk just a little bit. What do you make of the religious shifts that are happening between Hezekiah and then Manasseh, then Josiah, and then the ones that follow Josiah? Uh, it is like a roller coaster. Hezekiah is trying to get him back on track. Manasseh goes exactly the opposite direction. And then his son Josiah actually turns the other way and tries to get them going straight again. What does that tell you about families in uh, the royal house of, uh, of Jerusalem? <clears throat> Any thoughts about that? I mean, it kind of makes me think that maybe they didn't have the best relationship between father and son. Because so we kind of see that happening even with David. Yes, you and do. Well, yeah, what you have is that you have the queens and if they have a harem, and their children kind of live in their own quarters. So there's really very minimal father, what I would call father influence uh, in in those situations. What is interesting is that they seem to be more apt to follow their grandfather than their father. So uh, Manasseh, instead of following the more righteous ways of his father Hezekiah, follows the more evil ways of his grandfather Ahaz. But then uh, Josiah, instead of following the evil ways of his father, follows more of the righteous ways of Hezekiah. Uh, so they kind of s- seem to skip a generation somehow. Uh, it's just kind of a, I don't know how, how much we ought to conclude out of that, but, but it is interesting to see that pattern. Um, one thing is clear, a righteous parent doesn't have some sort of guarantee that they will have a righteous child. Um, good parents sometimes have bad kids and sometimes not so good parents have some pretty good kids. Um, and that's obviously illustrated here. Now, here's another question. This kind of intrudes a little bit into, uh your lectures in a couple of weeks when you do the later prophets, I suppose, but the young Jeremiah is going to witness the loss of Josiah. In fact, according to Chronicles, and you probably read this today, if you read Chronicles today, Jeremiah composes funeral songs for for Josiah. Uh, What would you think Jeremiah's attitude would be toward Josiah's reforms? Any thoughts about that? Positive, I would think. I can't see how he could be anything but positive. It's it's headed the right direction. But for whatever reason, in the book of Jeremiah, he never comments on them. He doesn't say a single word about Josiah's reforms, which I find a bit surprising. And makes me wonder why. Why would he not say something about Josiah's reforms? Something that he surely would have supported. What do you think? Any ideas about that? I don't remember the chronology of Jeremiah. Well, there's no chronology in well, Jeremiah. <laughs> <better> be like, <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. But wouldn't have his main message was to
0: turn back to the government. Kind of like,
1: yeah. So wouldn't that kind of be, not beside the point, but kind of not his main message to his name? Maybe. And this happens when Jeremiah's relatively young, and most of his sermons are going to be when he's a little bit older and then going on toward the uh, latter part of his life. I don't know. I suspect that maybe Jeremiah thought Josiah's efforts were just too little too late. Uh, it wasn't going to happen. Even though it was a good idea and he hoped it would happen, he was pretty sure it wouldn't happen. That's a guess, Uh, but uh, for whatever reason anyway, Jeremiah doesn't talk about Josiah's reforms. Well, here's the calendar of the death of Judah. Uh, The kingdom, like the northern kingdom, is going to lose its identity. About a quarter of a century after the death of Josiah. Pharaoh Neeku kills Josiah and very quickly deposes his son, Jehoahaz. So Jehoahaz is going to be the first king of Judah who is permanently deported and doesn't come home. People are hoping he will come home, but Jeremiah is going to say he's not coming back. He's going to die in Egypt. He'll never return. What would that do theologically to the people of Judah who are depending upon the house of David and their loyalty to the dynasty of David and so on when they see the Davidic son headed off into exile in Egypt? Probably freak out. Uh, yeah, probably freak them out. That's, that's, that's a, a modern way of saying it. That's probably about right. Uh, it would certainly rattle their theological underpinnings because they probably thought this couldn't happen. And now it does happen. And so they're forced, in in a sense, to start rethinking how they understand the covenant, how they understand the house of David, and so on. Um, After that, Nebuchadnezzar is going to defeat Nico II at the Battle of Carchemish in 605. Well, that's going to change things because, up to this point, then, since Nico deposed uh, Jehoahaz, Nico is in a suzerainty vassal relationship with Judah. Now Nebuchadnezzar defeats Egypt. So, Jehoiak, uh, Jehoiakim, who is the new king, is going to change sides. Uh, what do you do when you're between two bullies? both of which are coming at you. You try to figure out which one's going to win and you're going to be on his side. Well, I don't know if that's what you would do, but that's what, probably what I would do. (laughs) Who who looks looks the biggest and the meanest? I think think I'm going to be with this guy. That's sort of the, that's where the king of Judah is. He's got Babylon on one side, Egypt on the other, and they're both coming at him, and he first of all sides with Egypt, then he changes and he sides with Babylon when they look like they're stronger. Uh, And then uh, Judah is going to, when Judah surrenders to Nebuchadnezzar, Jehoiakim is forced to change his loyalty, Uh, but then Babylon invades Egypt, but is turned back. So now Babylon would seem so powerful, maybe it's not as powerful as I thought, so Jehoiakim goes back the other way again. He sounds like a, a true modern politician. You want to know my opinion? I'll tell you in just a minute when I figure out which way the wind's blowing. <laughs> it's, like they, it's like they used to say about <clears throat> one American president some decades ago. I want to make myself perfectly clear Maybe I will, maybe I won't. <laughs> um, that's sort of the way the king of Judah is. So Jehoiakim uh, reverses back to Egypt, but then Nebuchadnezzar is going to attack Jerusalem. And Jehoiakim's going to die. He's chained for deportation, but he never gets deported because they kill him and they throw his corpse over the wall and just leave it out there to rot like a donkey. Uh, so it's just, uh, it's just pretty awful. Uh, And then eventually Jerusalem is going to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar who's going to deport the next king to Babylon. So now we've got an execution and two deportations of Judean kings. One in Egypt, one in Babylon, one dead. The new king is going to be a puppet king, Zedekiah, and he's gonna last for um, uh, not much more than a decade and then uh, he also is going to succumb. Pharaoh Necho, in the meantime, dies, and he's succeeded by the next pharaoh, who is the II, and Zedekiah finally plans a revolt against Babylon. He's going to try to break free, and that's not going to work very well. Uh, the Egyptians are going to come into Palestine uh, briefly, but they're, they try to stir stuff up, but they're not very successful. Uh, and in the end, Zedekiah does rebel against Babylon, hoping... That the Egyptians will support him. Well, <clears throat> they're not going to support him. In fact, one of the prophets said: leaning on Egypt is like leaning on a staff that breaks and it spears your arm. He says, that's, that's about what you're going to get out of Egypt, is you're not going to get much. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to attack Judah, put Jerusalem to siege, and finally in 587 or 6, which one do you use again? Seven, six. Anyway. Uh, the Babylonians are going to breach the walls of Jerusalem and Zedekiah is going to be caught trying to escape uh, and uh, that's going to turn bad. They're going to, going to slaughter his sons before his eyes and then punch out his eyes so that his last living visible memory is the slaughter of his own children. Uh, we talked about brutality, but there's a lot of it going on in this, uh, this kind of scenario. So this is, this is the sort of the, what's going to happen in the next number of years uh, to the country of Judah, and Judah will cease to exist as a political state. <clears throat> so we're going to unpack each of those a little bit in turn, starting with Jehoahaz. This is, a, again, one of those kings that has more than one name, so that's going to be a, a bit of a challenge. When you read the book of Jeremiah, he's going to be called Shalom. When you read Kings, he's gonna be called Jehoahaz. So kind of keep in mind that this is a guy with more than one name. So he's not really up to facing a superpower and uh, he only lasts about three months before Pharaoh Necho deports him to Egypt and he will not come back. Uh, Necho is going to impose heavy tribute and install Jehoahaz's older brother as the new king and his name will be Jehoiakim. Now, it's always a challenge when you're reading this stuff to keep Jehoiakim straight from Jehoiakim, okay? They're they're right next to each other, and they sound almost the same, but they're not quite the same. So Jehoiakim is the one we're talking about. He is the vassal king of Egypt. By the way, we may actually have the seal of Jehoahaz, uh, this particular seal uh, has uh, the phrase "the son of the king," uh, and it has an inscription that says, "Belonging to Jehoahaz, the son of the king." Um, so many scholars believe this is this is genuine. Now the problem is that Jehoahaz is there's more than one person at uh, uh, that period of time with that name, so it becomes a little complicated. But we might actually have this. is one of the slides I added that I didn't originally have, but it's, uh, it's uh, uh, at least a, a possibility of a, of a connection there. Uh, so Jehoiakim's reign, uh, he begins as a vassal to Egypt, uh, but he's basically sitting between superpowers. By the way, why does everybody want to control Jerusalem? What's so good about Jerusalem and the land of Judah? Pardon? I'm sure you're right, but I don't know what you said. Okay, it's not a desert, is that what you said? Yeah. Uh, That's certainly true. But it is the door for trade routes in three major directions. Africa, Europe, and Asia. And everybody's coming through with caravans. So whoever controls the gate, so to speak, controls a huge amount of potential wealth. And everybody wants to control Jerusalem for that reason, uh, because it guards this link between three continents. Uh, So the Egyptians want it. The Babylonians want it. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to invade Judah. Jehoiakim is forced then to become a a vassal of Babylon now. He's got to switch his loyalty. So first with Egypt, now he's to Babylon. And to uh, sort of cement his loyalty to Babylon He is uh, compelled to send some of his young men to Babylon to be educated in Babylonian culture. That is going to include four, three or four famous young men, one very famous, the other three pretty famous, and that is Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, and uh, who'd I leave out? You know them better by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, Daniel is a... Daniel is a Hebrew name. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a Babylonian names. So their Hebrew names are, uh, are uh, Azariah, Mishael, and uh, I can't remember the other one. I keep losing it. But anyway, Daniel also has a Babylonian name, which is Belteshazzar. Um, so you'll find that when you get to the book of Daniel. But that's when these three young guys end up in Babylon, is when Jehoiakim changes loyalty. And they're not sent there as prisoners of war. Now, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure how you run this or how you address this in the DBS, but I'm going to mention this because this is the way it is addressed in SBSs regularly. When Daniel and the young men are sent to Babylon by Jehoiakim, the SBSs regularly call this the first deportation. Um, I don't have a problem with calling it that because it is a deportation. But it is not a deportation of prisoners of war in the way that later there will be. And when you read in a Bible dictionary or a Bible encyclopedia the phrase first deportation, they will not be talking about this. They will be talking about what happens during the reign of Jehoiakim, not what happens in the reign of Jehoiakim. So uh, it's, a, it's a language issue. I mean, everybody knows what's happening, uh, but for whatever reason in the YMWAM SBS as they tend to call this the first deportation, which is all right so long as you understand when you read that in an academic work, it won't be talking about this. We'll be talking about something that happens a little bit later. Uh, so I just mentioned that in passing. Um, <clears throat> in any case, um, uh, the Babylonians uh, are going to try to invade Egypt and they're not going to be successful in doing that. So Jehoiakim thinks, well, maybe I can switch back to Egypt. I like Egypt better. So uh, they're closer and uh, maybe I can switch back. And he tries to do that. But that means that he is backing down on his loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. So you, 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 know, you just can't have it both ways. Uh, and he ends up on the wrong side. This is uh, two sides of what is uh, one of the tablets in the Babylonian Chronicle, and uh, it actually talks about Nebuchadnezzar marching his army to Hattu, or the the city that earlier we called Hatti, Uh, but this is a way of talking about Israel. And he encamps against the city of Jerusalem, I mean, sorry, the city of Judah, which is Jerusalem, and he captures the city and seizes its king, a king of his own choice. He appointed in the city and took vast tribute and brought it to Babylon. So this describes Nebuchadnezzar's attack on Jerusalem after Jehoiakim tried to change sides once again. So once again, we have this interaction between biblical material and outside text. So when Jehoiakim uh, is uh, uh, arrested and the city is seized by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, according to the Kings and Chronicles records, Jehoiakim is chained for deportation. And if you didn't have any other information, you would just assume he ended up being deported to Babylon. However, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah will talk about Jehoiakim's uh, execution, and they are going to throw his body over the wall and just leave it out there in the open. Uh, so that appears that even though he was chained for deportation, uh, at some point they just killed him. Uh, so apparently he doesn't get deported. He, he uh, dies in Jerusalem. His son, who at this point is a teenager, how'd you like to be a teenager and face up against the Babylonians? I mean, what a task. I mean, you just can't imagine He comes to the throne, he doesn't last very long, and he, his mother, his harem, his officials, and 10,000 citizens, including a young priest by the name of Ezekiel, are going to be sent to Babylon as prisoners of war. Now this is what scholars call the first deportation. So when scholars talk about the first deportation, they are talking about a deportation of prisoners of war which is a little different than Daniel and the young men going, which is why they make that distinction. In any case, uh, Ezekiel is going to end up in Babylon, and he doesn't actually start his prophetic ministry until he gets to Babylon. So all of Ezekiel's preaching is going to happen in Babylon. So you'll be talking about that sometime in the next couple of weeks, I would think. Uh, The temple is stripped for booty. It seems like everybody that comes through strips the temple. I mean, how many layers were there? I don't know, but they pretty much cleaning it out uh, to pay off uh, the the bullies. And Zedekiah, again, somebody with two names, unfortunately. We have Madaniah, who is the same as Zedekiah. Do you ever have to read a Russian novel? Like, uh, you know, uh, Dostoevsky or somebody like that. Everybody's got two or three names and you're gonna figure out, what's happening? Who is this? You're reading a chapter about this guy and then the next chapter? Pardon? Okay, well, it happens in the Brothers Karamazoo, yeah. Uh, You get these people with two names or three names and you figure out who in the world are they talking about? So it's the same kind of thing here. You get these kings with two names. So Jehoiakim's uncle Zedekiah is installed as a vassal king. He's going to reign for 11 years as a Babylonian vassal, but that will end badly with the fall of the city of Jerusalem. In his fourth regnal year, He's going to travel to Babylon, probably to pay tribute. We don't know why he went to Babylon. We just know it says he went there. But typically, he would go there in order to pay tribute to the Babylonians. But according to Jeremiah, Jeremiah gave him a letter to take to Babylon. And he's going to take it there uh, and um, throw it in the river. Uh, I won't tell that story since that's going to come up in the book of Jeremiah, but uh, I'll just mention it in passing. Zedekiah's reign uh, is marked by this hope that somehow everything will turn right. There was this kind of um, uh, incredible optimism on the part of the citizens of Jerusalem that everything was going to go right because they still had a son of David on the throne. Zedekiah is in the family of David, even though he's a puppet king, and in fact, some of the prophets that are going to be talked about in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel are going to say that in a short time, everybody will be back to normal and will all live happily ever after. In fact, one of the prophets said in two years, everybody that went to Babylon will all be home. Jeremiah says, well, amen, but you're wrong not going to be that way. Uh, they're going to be in Babylon 70 years. <clears throat> so uh, in the end, Zedekiah is going to rebel against Babylon and that will precipitate the final days of the life of Jerusalem. The Babylonian army is going to put the city to siege. It will be in siege for a couple of years and eventually the wall is breached. Once the wall is breached, that is definitely the beginning of the end because that means you just can't keep them out. Now, since war is always religious war, what is the first thing they're going to do when they get into the city of Jerusalem? Burn the temple. That's a a symbol that our God has defeated your God and we're burning his temple as a sign that that we've we've, uh, conquered him. So the temple that Solomon built is going to be burned to the ground. Out of that, there are some things that we don't know answers to. For one thing, we don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. There are some traditions. Uh, there's one in uh, the intertestamental literature that says Jeremiah hid it down in a cave by the Dead Sea. But if he did, we've never found it. Uh, There's another tradition that says it made its way to Ethiopia and in fact there is a group of Ethiopians today who claim they still have it, but they won't let anybody see it. So we're not quite convinced. Um, And of course all true believers know that Indiana Jones uh, found it and it ends up in a warehouse and is lost somewhere. (laughs) Uh, But they do destroy the temple. Now, that's a theological issue. Think of what, they, what they're losing. They're losing the temple, they're losing the house of David, and they're losing the land. They're losing the major symbols of their self-identity. So this is a huge theological problem. I'm not teaching on the prophets, but as you go into the prophets, just be aware that it is the prophets that help them understand this. This loss is not due to the weakness of Yahweh. This loss is due to the covenant violation of the nation year after year after year after year and God has finally done what he said he would do. He would send them and disperse them among the nations and that is exactly what is going to happen. So Zedekiah uh, is hoping for freedom and survival both Jeremiah and Ezekiel says it's a, it's a false hope. It's not gonna happen. In fact, on one occasion, Zedekiah calls Jeremiah in and says, uh, do you have a word for me? Jeremiah says, yep. Debuchadnezzar are gonna burn this city down and kill you. <laughs> Don't you have anything else to say? No, <laughs> that's it. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's crazy. Jeremiah describes Zedekiah in Jerusalem as a basket full of rotten figs. Uh, They're ready to be pitched out. They're done. Uh, Ezekiel said that God abandons the temple. Now, that's an important idea in Ezekiel, that the temple is abandoned by God in order to allow the Babylonians to destroy it. So when you get to the book of Ezekiel, that's a real important point very early in the book. hoping for reprieve from Egypt is simply not gonna work. Uh, that's just not going to happen. So we come to the attack upon Judah. Zedekiah's rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, uh, of course, is, uh, is the death knell for the nation. Uh, the outlying fortress cities that were uh, guarding the pass toward Jerusalem are going to be destroyed. Once again, we're going to find this city, Lachish, because Lachish, remember, goes all the way back uh, to what we talked about uh, roughly 100 years earlier. Now, Lachish has been rebuilt because it guards that pass. They need that city there. And there's another city also mentioned, Azqa. Both of these are mentioned in the book of Jeremiah as the fortress cities that are protecting Jerusalem from the Babylonian advance. Uh, when Zedekiah asked Jeremiah whether God is going to intervene, Jeremiah said, no, God's not going to intervene. This is going to end up in the destruction of the city. The best thing you can do is surrender now, save as many lives as possible. Uh, The Babylonian armies uh, temporarily withdrew. They heard a rumor that there was uh, something stirring in the south, so they backed off a little bit. And uh, Zedekiah said, is this this our chance? Is this going to mean that God's coming in and saving us? And Jeremiah says, no, Nebuchadnezzar will be back. He's, he's going to burn the city down. You might as well surrender. That's the best you can do. And so they treated him basically as a, as a traitor and put him in prison. This is an ostracon from Arad. Now, Arad is a city in southern Judah, and an ostracon is a piece of pottery that's been used as a postal note, basically. Uh, this is an interesting one because it says uh, we can't read it all but what we can read says and as for the matter you instructed me about the house of Yahweh is well. It endures. So at the very least it helps us to understand their mindset. They're looking at the temple's survival as sort of the symbol of the survival of the nation. And in this little writing which is not in the Bible this is just a an archeological find. But it says uh, that at the time of writing at least, the temple is still standing, it is not in danger. All right, let me stop a minute. Everybody take a deep breath. (laughs) See if you have any questions I can't answer. We okay? I see the wheels turning, Maya. Not yet. Not yet, okay. All right, Nebuchadnezzar's strategy, pretty similar to the ones we found in Sennacherib. Uh, The defense cities uh, are going to be the first to be destroyed so that the Babylonian army can come right straight into Jerusalem. Lachish apparently has been rebuilt after it was destroyed by Sennacherib, and he put it in those reliefs. but they've, they've rebuilt things. And at the time of Jeremiah, only two of these defense cities are still standing. There's probably apparently several of them, but the only ones still hanging in there are Lakish and oz The reason this is so, so fascinating is because we discovered a cache of military letters between a Judean military commander and his subordinate that talk about the Babylonian invasion. I don't know if you're familiar with these letters or not. They're called the Lachish letters. Um, But these letters, there are, I think, 14 of them altogether, several of them in any case. These were discovered back in the 1930s during the excavation of Lachish. And they are between Jewish military personnel. Uh, They uh, contain orders for arrangement of signal fires. So, in the ancient world, signal fires is what um, substitutes for cell phones, I guess, today. Uh, You try to communicate in some way, uh, and signal fires one way. Uh, It also talks about sending to Egypt for military support. They talk about the inspection of the guards. Uh, What is really fascinating, that several of the names that appear in these letters are names that also appear in the book of Jeremiah. But they're all about the invasion of Jerusalem in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So this is a fascinating set of letters. Uh, These are some of the names that are in there, Gemariah, Jazaniah, and Nariah. Um, This is one of them. This is uh, Lachish letter three, which is in the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem. This contains a reference to a prophet who has warned, beware. Now that's intriguing because it doesn't name the prophet. Um, Could it have been Jeremiah? Well, yeah, it could have been. We don't know. Uh, That might even be likely. But it is an interesting reference uh, that there is a prophet who has challenged the city of Jerusalem and said to beware. This is uh, Lachish letter number four, and you can see it's written on both sides. This is, this is one side, and then you flip it over, and, and then this is side. And this says, And let my Lord know that we are watching for the signal fires of Lachish according to all the indications which my Lord has given, for we cannot see Ozkaw. That probably means that Ozkaw has already gone down, and Lachish is next in line. Um, so, uh sometime if you want to do a little bit of fascinating research, uh, look up the Lachish letters, either in an encyclopedia or maybe online, and uh, you can get uh, a lot more detail than I'm going to be giving you today. Uh, but it's a really important artifact that is right square in the middle of the event we're talking about at the end of 2 Kings. So the siege for Zedekiah's uh, city starts in the ninth year Of his reign and is going to last a couple of years. Uh, Starvation eventually is going to be rampant in the city and as it mentions uh, in the Book of Lamentations people have at the uh, last part of the siege resorted to cannibalism. So it's just it's just an awful kind of kind of thing. Um, uh, Some of the citizens citizens actually give themselves up to the Babylonians. Uh, Ezekiel who is a thousand miles away in Babylon has predicted that Zedekiah the king is gonna try to escape. In fact, Ezekiel's gonna do this with a little uh, mime. He's gonna dig a hole in the side of his house and sneak through with a pack on his back to sort of, uh, uh, you know, pantomime the escape of Zedekiah. And Zedekiah's gonna try and do that. He's gonna try and get out of town. But unfortunately he gets caught. Uh, at least unfortunately for him, and so uh, that's going to be the end. Here is a text with two Babylonian officials that are both mentioned in the biblical accounts. When you're reading 2 Kings, you're going to read about somebody called Nebuzaradan, and when you read Jeremiah, you're going to find somebody called Nergal Sherezer of Shamgar. Um, Both of these names are in this Assyria, I'm sorry, this Babylonian text. This is what is left of a Jerusalem defense tower that was there in the time of Zedekiah. You can kind of get a gauge of its size by the people that are standing up here. Uh, So these are are quite large stones. This is a defense tower for probably a gateway uh, of one of the city of Jerusalem's uh, gate walls. It's about 26 feet high, so it's pretty good sized wall. Um, At the base of the tower, uh, there are all kinds of evidences of the siege. Uh, we have found a deep layer of ash, and we found a bunch of arrowheads, uh, which are Babylonian-style arrowheads. In fact, here are some of the arrowheads. Uh, we have uh, three kind of light-colored arrowheads. These are iron arrowheads. And then we have a one kind of a, with a green tint, which is bronze. Uh, So they were still using some bronze for arrowheads, uh, and uh, those all are left over from the fall of Jerusalem. So here's the way it happens. It starts in Zedekiah's ninth regnal year on the tenth day of the tenth month. It's going to extend until his eleventh year when the wall is breached, and then finally, very shortly after the wall is breached, just within the next month, the temple will be burned. I mean, once the wall is breached, they're, they're going to be just coming in. Um, this is, uh, an, uh, is from an excavation in uh, Ashkelon, which the Babylonians all so destroyed. So this is not Jerusalem, but it does show this archaeologist who is excavating a human skeleton of uh, a young woman, probably in her 30s, and she has had her brains crushed with a club, uh, and uh, sh- her bones are just like she fell. Uh, so the, uh, this archaeologist is excavating her skeleton there. So you get a little bit of a feel of the, of the horror of the fall of Jerusalem. Well, after Zedekiah's capture, as I mentioned a few moments ago, he's forced to watch the execution of his sons. And then his eyes are put out. The temple is burned. Uh, every major building in Jerusalem is destroyed. In fact, the fire is so hot that some of the mud brick in Jerusalem was vitrified. That means it basically melted into glass. Uh, so it's, it, it, was, it was pretty awful. The walls of Jerusalem were broken down. Everything of any worth was taken by the Babylonians and everybody else pretty much is deported. Uh, They all are going to head off to Babylon. Gedaliah is going to be appointed as the governor of Jerusalem under the Babylonian administration. Pretty quickly, he's going to be assassinated by some patriots, and you're going to read more about that story in the book of Jeremiah. So this this is the way the nation ends, starting all the way back with the deportation of Manasseh Uh, earlier, followed then by Jehoiakim's uh, vassalship to Pharaoh Nico, his switch to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the deportation of uh, the three young men and Daniel, uh, the rebellion of Jehoiakim now against the Babylonians because he's tried to switch back to Egypt. Uh, The Babylonians come in, they execute him. Uh, His son Jehoiakim is deported Uh, sent to Babylon along with the Queen Mother and a lot of the leading citizens in what's called the first deportation. Uh, Then there's the destruction of Jerusalem under Zedekiah, which will be the second deportation. At least that's the way it's going to be usually talked about in Bible dictionaries. There is a final deportation that's briefly described at the end of Jeremiah uh, that seems to happen even a little bit later than that. Uh, And ultimately, Jeremiah is going to end up in Egypt, along with a lot of other Jews that fly to Egypt. They're mentioned in 2 Kings 25. From this point on, then, you're going to have Jews living in three parts of the world. There are going to be a few remnants that are still around Judah that have survived. There's going to be a group of refugees that have gone to Egypt that have survived and there's going to be a community that has gone to Babylon in deportation and they survive and are allowed to live in a community. So unlike the Northern tribes, which got shot all everywhere in the Assyrian empire, the Jews deported to Babylon are allowed to live in more or less what we would call a ghetto in Babylon by the uh, by one of the canals along uh, the river. And so they're going to be able to maintain at least some amount of identity because they are able to live together. Uh, so Gedaliah's murder creates a lot of panic. The Babylonians, what are they gonna do? Um, so they take Jeremiah and they run to Egypt. Uh, and eventually Jeremiah is gonna die in Egypt. One more footnote for Jehoiakim. Now you gotta keep that stepper from Jehoiakim, okay? Jehoiakim is the one who gets killed and his body thrown out for exposure. Jehoiakim, who's the teenage king, gets deported to Babylon in the deportation, and eventually the Babylonians are going to honor him and give him a pension. Seems a little odd in a way, but that's what they do. Uh, when uh, uh the uh Babylonian monarch called Abel Marduk comes to the throne, he's going to treat Jehoiakim with favor as a foreign dignitary. And <clears throat> about a quarter of a century after the fall of Jerusalem, Jehoiakim's family is going to be pensioned in Babylon. He's still considered to be the rightful king. Uh and what is interesting is we actually have a Babylonian text that mentions Jehoiakim by name and his family and how much allotment they got in the pension. And this is it. Well, actually, have four of them. This is one of the four. Uh, so this little, this little cuneiform Babylonian tablet mentions Jehoiakim by name and says that he's been pensioned and uh, he gets a certain amount of monthly rations for his family uh, in Babylon. So, um, this was God's warning at the dedication of Solomon's temple. If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments, then I will cut off Israel from the land. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. That was made hundreds of years earlier. And now that disaster has actually happened. The prophets who warned of disaster for Jerusalem in the temple, there are several of them. Micah, who says Jerusalem will be plowed like a field. Isaiah, who talks about the disaster that would happen to Jerusalem. Huldah, who read the scroll that was found in the temple. Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, All of these prophets said essentially the same thing. Jerusalem, if you don't correct your course, you are doomed. And it happened. So I want to come to the end of uh, Jerusalem with um, two passages, one is from the Psalms and one is from Lamentations. The one from the Psalms, which is a reflection upon the fall of Jerusalem says, pick your way through these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought in the sanctuary. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up standards as signs. They behave like men wielding axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. A very vivid reflection on what happened to Jerusalem in its fall. Lamentations begins with how deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow she is, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. And that's where the books of 1st and 2nd Kings end. of the city. There are two great historical events around which all of the Old Testament are built. One is the Exodus, the other is the exile. The books leading up to the Exodus are anticipating getting into the land and pretty much after they get into it the rest of books are talking about the fact you're going to lose it if you don't keep covenant. Uh, but around those two poles, the Exodus and the Exile, pretty much all of the other books of the Old Testament are clustered. So as we come to the end of today's lectures, um, a couple of questions. How did the exile of the Northern kingdom and then later the Southern kingdom? How does the exile qualify as an act of God? And why is it important to see the exile that way? God is the one who allowed it, yeah. I would say that's true. If it, is not, if it was not seen as an act of God, what would that do theologically to the way the people of God would have understood things? Probably a wholesale loss of faith. It is precisely because the fall of Judah and Jerusalem is seen as an act of God that the faith of Israel can survive even in exile, and be ready to emerge again on the other side of exile where the prophets also talk about hope for the future. The prophets had a lot of doom in their oracles, but it wasn't all doom. They also talk about hope, hope that is on the other side of this disaster. And on the other side of this disaster, God is not foiled by the events of history. He uses those events to accomplish his purposes, and ultimately he will continue to accomplish his purposes on the other side of exile. That's a really important idea. I think the prophets help them understand that. Um, any final takeaways from the sad history of Judah we've talked about today? Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. him so i think got to a point where he's like listen like the only way this is going to get better is if i just like completely just like start it. with a new slate yeah, like just wipe it out and so even though we see that yeah. as like kind of mm-hmm. brutal i feel like
1: that's better than them continuously going like back mm-hmm. and forth but like, we love you god
0: yeah. we love these guys like,
1: yeah know. yeah well it does help you understand why we say that not just we but the bible says that god is long suffering you put up with these people a long time. Probably a lot longer than I'd put up with my kids if they behaved this way. <laughs> I would have brought in exile sooner. <laughs> I don't know about exile, but something. Anyway, uh, but God is very long-suffering, but, but God also has to be true to himself. If he has made a covenantal promise to them that he will bless them if they obey but he will send them into exile eventually if they, if they violate the covenant. At some point, he's got to do that. Otherwise, he's not faithful to himself. He's not true to himself. Um, so I think that's an important idea, and I, I think what you said is, is, is pretty much spot on. Yeah, Cassie.
0: Mm-hmm. Um proved his character but also
1: um the fact that he did it when he did it was perfect time and I'm repeating myself but because if they had if he had done it before, like if he had done it generations before, say after Solomon he would just like done iron Okay. I think the future generations need to see how far they can go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, all of this history you know we we as Christians we read about it. it's all a long time ago, but it has something to say to us too. It's it 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 has something to say about God, but it also has something to say about us as humans. Because in a sense, the people of Israel are kind of like paradigms for the rest of us. (laughs) The things that happen to them are the same kinds of things that happen to all of us. And the God who uh, was long-suffering to them is the God who was long-suffering to us. Um, And the God who sees beyond disaster and offers hope is the God who offers hope to us as well. Um, So what happens to the Messianic promise? The promise God gave to the family of David. Now the sons of David are not ruling in Jerusalem. What happens to the house of David in the midst of all of this disaster? Pardon? There's There's still hope. Yeah, that would be Jehoiakin. Yep. Yeah. No, the family isn't hasn't disappeared. It's uh, sort of underground in a way, um, but the grandson of Jehoiakin is going to be somebody you're going to meet in the book of Ezra by the name of Zerubbabel, and he's going to rebuild that temple. You lost your postal notes. You lost your clay tablet. (laughs) Um, So when you get to the New Testament, how does the New Testament begin? Begins with a set of genealogies that's going to go from Abraham to David and from David to Jeconiah which is the New Testament name for Jehoiakim, And from Jeconiah, it's going to go to Joseph and Mary and Jesus. So that line survives all of these turmoils of history and ends up with the birth of the miraculous birth of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, who is of the house of David and the promises of God are still kept. I don't know how you would summarize the gospel, but in the New Testament, Paul has one of the shortest summaries of the gospel of anybody. So one of the Timothy letters, I think. He says, Jesus Christ descended from David, raised from the dead, This is my gospel. As Christians, we focus on the raised from the dead part, but we tend to read over pretty quickly that descended from David part, but that's a real important part because it means there is a link that goes all the way back to these ancient things that we've been talking about and survives through the exile, survives through history, survives all the way down the time until the good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. descended from David raised from the dead, this is the gospel. Now, of course, the gospel is a little more involved in those two points, and I think Paul would agree. At least he agrees in all of his other letters. But but in kind of capsulizing, you know, two really important hinge points of the gospel, this is the way Paul describes it. So that's where we are today. Tomorrow we will look at uh, 2 Chronicles and how it fits in with this basic story. And then I have one other thing I'm going to do tomorrow that is entirely out of the range of anything we've been talking about so far.